Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. Today we're talking about uh, contract management tools and transitioning to an associate professorship role. Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andov discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello, hello, good listeners. Uh, we are back. Uh, today is quite special and I'm going to tell you all about it. But before we jump into the episode itself, we wanted to take this opportunity with Willem to thank you for your support so far. Uh, ask you if you're not subscribed to our Apple, Spotify and all the other forms where you can listen to us, please do, please do so. Uh, like the episodes, share them, show us some love. Um, we always look forward to hearing back um, from you. And today for our main course, uh, we will be talking about the contract management tools, so a bit of tech today. And in our dessert section, uh, we will be sharing some reflections uh, that we have on transitioning to the role of associate professorship. But today is also special from a couple of different reasons. First of all, we recording for the very first time in person. Willem is in Copenhagen. Yay, I'm here, finally. <laughs> took, finally. took only three years for three. me to get here. <laughs> Absolutely. And another part of why today is special is because we're also launching a new part of the Bestech, uh, a part that we will continuously in upcoming months and hopefully years. I feel like we need drums. Do we have drums? I don't know. Do we have drums? I don't know how that will show on the <laughs> on the recording. But yeah, the new part is that we will be um, inviting new guests to our podcast. And um, today we have our very first one. Uh, so warm welcome to Associate Professor Alexandra Andhoff. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> a, a slow entry, but we'll, we'll get going very soon. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you here, uh, Alex. Um, for those of you that don't know Alexandra's work, she focuses on uh, questions of corporate law, corporate governance, capital markets, law, and technology from an interdisciplinary and comparative perspective. You work here at the Faculty of, of Law at um, uh, the University of Copenhagen. And even cooler than all of the done that long sentence with all these very important words is that you recently started uh, to podcast yourself as well. You started the Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast and you've already got five episodes up. I feel like she's coming for us. Yeah, I think she got it slightly inspired. Let's take a credit for that. <laughs> exactly. How, how has it been to record those first episodes? So first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and, you know, I feel very honored to be your first live uh, <laughs> guest, uh, guest on, on the podcast. That's, uh, that's a big milestone for you, I assume. It's also the pressure's on, right? But yeah, keep going. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, so I think that, yeah, I, you know, when we kind of thought uh, in our Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab uh, group and team whether um, to start a new podcast, we're a little bit discussing whether the world needs another legal or law and tech podcast because, you know, there are a couple of them. And then, yeah, we kind of came to a conclusion that there are all these podcasts that take, you know, two hours and two and a half hours and so on. And we want to 
they're really a small bite, so a little bit different than uh, than many other legal tech podcasts. I feel like that's an implicit uh, nudge for us Dick to have to shorter us. episodes as well. But we we'll always do, we'll, try. We'll do our best. Now it's fantastic that you launched it. So please, uh, if you're interested in this topic as well. Uh, on top of procurement, of course, uh, have a listen to their first episodes, and I'm sure there's lots, lots more uh, to come. Um, as a uh, that introduction that I just gave uh, didn't have the word procurement in it, no, right? So just don't. scope the landscape a little bit. Mm. Where does public procurement sit, if it sits somewhere at all, in your research? So if we're going with our dining, whining and dining comparison or metaphor, um, is that your entry? your side dish, your dessert, or is that something that you never order from the menu? To be brutally honest, um, it's it would be the dish that it's on a next table, uh, you know, next person sitting next table uh, menu. Um, and sometimes I get invited to, to sit by. Um, <laughs> and to eat someone else's food. <laughs> uh, not necessarily. Um, maybe more, um, yeah, be the company rather than eat the food, you know. Um, but as a, as a field of law, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's relevant. In my research as such, um, it does not take really direct place. But um, because, you know, I know so many public procurement lawyers at this point in my life and you are such a such a loving and great group of people I very much always enjoy to to becoming um, and joining uh, whatever kind of public procurement talks uh, are out there so um, do I know a little bit about public procurement yes um, do I want to write about public procurement? Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> well, you actually wrote, though, a little bit, True. though. True. Actually, yes. I did, yes. Yes, you have an article with public oh, yes. procurement in the title. Yes, a couple of years back. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this is, in the end, everyone moves over to the dark side, right? Yes. And I also feel like sometimes maybe, you know how you sit in a restaurant and you look at what someone else has ordered and you're like, ah, damn, I should have ordered that myself. So maybe that's procurement for you or maybe Exactly, not. We'll, we'll exactly. And that's the, you know, that's the reason why I'm, I'm, I, I had this metaphor for you because to, to, to showcase also to your listeners that, you know, it can be very appealing. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, before we, we go too much into giving each other compliments back and forth, uh, it, again, it's a pleasure to have you. And today for our main, we'll be talking about um, contract management tools. And, and of course, there's a reason why we invited you because... At the core of your research is tech, but also contracts, right? Correct. And as a as a uh, from a public procurement law perspective, that's ultimately where we end up. We end up with a contract. Um, and um, what we'll be doing for our main is really scoping into. So we'd love to talk a little bit about digital technologies and why everyone should be uh, taking account of it in, yes. the, in the public procurement sphere. But then really pinpoint contract management. Why is it important? What do we uh, what should we know about it? And what are possible avenues in which we can solve some of the pains that we're experiencing in, yeah. the, in the public sector when it comes to public procurement? So um, what Mark and I will obviously do is we'll turn everything into a, a bit of a legal problem or we'll try to do that. Not that that's our role in life, right? To make or just sort of showcase where potentially there can be an answer from those tech solutions or what those tech solutions in themselves can pose as a, as a 
sort of red flag. Mm. Uh, because definitely we can see, and, and, and we talked about it often with Willem, that um, the management stage of procurement, if we are to predict the next years really where the legal developments also will be, um, is, is really in, in, in that phase of procurement. Particularly also, um, we often talk about the sustainable consideration and the whole point of you front-load it in the procedures, but do you really follow on them in yeah. the management stage? And if you don't, then that's obviously quite problematic and so on and so forth. But then it requires a lot of resources. It a lot, requires a lot of uh, time to really follow up on them. So can tech help us um, or Tech may introduce more challenges. So so this is where we will sort of try to jump in and, and try to showcase what Alex is doing, how that can be relevant, helpful and interesting to our public procurement audience. Yeah. Okay. So maybe for your listeners to, to li- give a little bit of the of the background. Um so yes, yeah, so my background is as you mentioned, film corporate law and corporate governance and and financial markets and and over the past, I would say, four, five, six years, more and more tech. Um, and in the past, maybe four years, more and more legal tech, right? And this is a new buzzword or, well, it's not that new, but it's definitely a buzzword uh, nonetheless um, that looks on the possibilities that technology has for a variety of legal spheres, right? And um, and for me, this is very interesting because I, I'm a little techie. I always enjoyed uh, the technology and often lawyers are not necessarily that techie. And it's not very natural for us to actually go to technology because we are fairly um, conservative in the way that we do. Uh, we still often use uh, pen and paper when we uh, write our thoughts. Uh, the biggest technological kind of evolution in law has happened with Word, you know, 30 years back. Uh, that's, that's a very funny statement, actually, because uh, when you mentioned like it's maybe not so new, also, I think many of our listeners. I think legal tech really hasn't landed very strongly in the no. public sector. No, for sure not yet, right? But and we will we will hopefully get to it. But um, so and so this is part where where I'm thinking. Okay, so how can tech help us? And and being with uh, lots of startups, and that's how it actually I came to the technology because I work with lots of startups, is to think about technology as a as a problem solution, right? So and I. And I very much appreciate that what you just mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, what are the pain points and how the technology should help with those. And I think this is the way how to think about the technology, really solving the problems. And I think that first and foremost, you know, in public procurement, as in any other field, you need to be aware what are the pain points and then think critically. Right. So I'm not here and I, and I will never say that, you know, technology is the solution for everything and the panacea. I think, no, we need to think critically because technology can really uh, give power where we did not intend originally and, and you know, have uh, some side effects that we didn't even think about before. it. But, yeah, maybe we can talk about it later. Um, so, yes. and um, And the last thing that I'll mention is that in both in my research, but also in my in my teaching um, at the university, I believe that more and more should lawyers be aware and be comfortable with technology. And for that to happen, we need to be comfortable also with a little bit of mathematics. So, uh, so yeah, so so for instance, uh, yeah, 
maybe I'll, I can do a little bit of a promo here. Um, in June, uh, my book that is called Computational Law is coming up. And the idea there is really to, to take a legal, either student or even not necessarily scholar, but practitioner through different stages of explaining what are computations and what is computational thinking and what is computational logic through what is algorithm to AI and understand what are the elements and how AI works and how machine learning works to the dark side of blockchain. Um, because I do believe that this is ultimately what all of us, and as I mean lawyers, and everyone who works within the legal sector will work with and will face. So you need to be aware what are the possibilities and the, the limitations. So this can actually sound like um, it can be an answer to the question that I was about to post or a statement that I was about to post, which is the f- problem that I personally see, and I think a lot of those are public procurers or legal counsels assisting public procurers, um, face is that it's quite intimidating, right? If you mm-hmm. tell me blockchain, if you tell me legal tech, it's it's sort of, okay, I'm not into it. Can I understand it? And I think because of how technical the language is, it's, it's, it's quite intimidating. So it sounds like that book potentially can be the entry point of you trying to understand the basic concepts in a way that sort of speaks to you as a non-tech person, but as a person that has some sort of understanding of how law works. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's the that's the hope. I mean, uh, of course, it will be to the readers to, to be the judges of that, whether I succeeded or not. But uh, but ultimately is the translation, right? Where I think that a lot of people actually get 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 lost in uh, because tech people speak different language than we do, even if we speak English. Uh, the way how they understand certain concepts is very different than than as we do. Like take for example, if you if you meet or talk to any person on a, on a street and you say contract, right? Our legal percep- perception of what contract is is fairly complex. It's nuanced. It's you know what are the legal requirements? What is your freedom to contract? Da 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 da. Whereas the contract for someone else is, well, it can be anything. It can be uh, employment contract, Shake it can be hand. just an agreement, can be when you actually just buy something in a, in a, in a, in a stand. So, so, and I think that we need to, because how digital our world has become, right? That's the hypothesis because we are getting more and more digitalized. Um, well, we need to come together a little bit more to be able to to communicate much better and much more efficient with the tech people. So what I take from this is that we need to be uh, humble to a certain extent as lawyers and be open to learning about these technologies because I, I sh- well, what you just mentioned, Marta, I share that. It, maybe it's a bit of a, I have a basic understanding, but I don't do research in digital technology. So it does always feel like it, when someone says, oh, do blockchain or contract management, for me, it's a little bit like math, you know, it's like the whole reason why I went to law is not to see that. So like you're telling me blockchain or you're telling me all this. I'm like, nah, I'm not sure. So in a way, this episode is Marta and me being open. Maybe <laughs> and humble, like very Marta humble. And, humble. Um, sure. and, and trying to, to also show the relevance of, because we do, we, we do te- definitely see the relevance. Mm. But it's about, I think, finding the moments where it can actually aid you as a, as a lawyer, as a public purchaser. Yes. Um, so, so thank you for that that introduction and also highlighting uh, your book on computational law. I'll look forward to to reading it. 
Um, so let's scope a bit more. Let's mm -hmm. uh, let's look at contract management because uh, we could do an episode about blockchain, about smart contracts. Yes. We're not doing that because we'll be here all day. And you told us that our episodes are too long already, <laughs> or at least implicitly, right? So um, just to get everyone started and in the zone, mm -hmm. what is contract management or what are contract management tools? It can be everything, you know, it is a very broad concept. In your world. In my world. Yeah. So in my world, and again, not necessarily being a public procurement specialist, but contract management tool is a tool that helps a lawyer from everywhere or from the starting point of even negotiating or thinking about a contract till, till enforcing it or possibly even claiming damages because of the contract. Right. So this, this is this technological solution that should enable different phases of contract life, right? So the life cycle of the contract. And, you know, in public procurement, the life cycle is a little bit different, looks a little bit different than, let's say, in a transactional or in a private law contract. Uh, but nonetheless, there are lots of possibilities. And I can just mention a few and then, you know, please feel free to jump into anything that sounds anyhow relevant for public procurement uh, area. So, so it can start with negotiating or having even an access to a different kinds of templates, right, that are out there that might be suitable for whether it's services, whether it's good, whether it's both. both. Um, so it's a kind of a template builder. It can have uh, a space for negotiation, for drafting the contracts, and not just with the external parties, but also internally. So if you are a large purchasing body and you have number of people who actually need to have a look and actually sign off the contract before it can go out, this is something that can help and facilitate this process and plus trace it, right? Because when we come maybe later on to a question of liability and accountability, it can serve from the very gecko. Then through the e-signature, right? And I think that this is a field by itself because even in the European Union, different member states have different approaches to the e-signature and actually seeing e-signature as something that is legally binding. Uh, then um, different kinds of timelines of the contract. And now I'm thinking really complex public contracts that maybe have ties to other 10 or 15 contracts. And now imagine the ability or have the ability to, to have real clear understanding when different contracts, when different phases come in and how they are connected and what are the deliverables, what are the timelines, what are the deadlines, what are the fines, for instance, right? Right? If, for instance, for a, if a, a, public, a private uh, company is delayed, then and up to really uh, different kinds of management reminders, uh, maybe there is a need to bring another party in because something is not delivered as it was because of the quality assurance, etc., etc., And up till really finalizing the contract, but also auditing the contract. Because now you have really a tool where anyone, a third party, and what is can be good and bad, can come in and have a look. Okay, so how did you do that? And I think that there is a great power in the data for the state, for the public authority to actually learn from their mistakes if there are. And, you know, we are humans, we make mistakes all the time. So have this kind of data and learn from them. And now, and the last thing I'll say is just not to completely uh, uh, 
push away your audience. We're still here. Don't you are still here. Okay. So, still awake. Um, so last thing is really now imagine that you have hundreds or thousands of these contracts. And often this is what actually will happen in reality. You can take a truly kind of a perspective from a helicopter understanding, okay, these are the the problematic areas within the, the public procurement. This is something where we always make mistakes. But so so you can improve in the process or in the procedure. And as far as I know, this is what actually is in the heart of the public procurement is a procedure, right? So these procedural elements can really be, be, be fixed, for instance, if there is an issue. But also from the perspective of transparency or if there are any kind of red flags, because this contract management tool can be easily plugged in other public records, whether they are corporate records, right, of corporate registries, whether there are some accounting tax records. And now all this data is, okay, is this something happening? Is there something happening? Is there, are there companies doing something because there, there is this one company that is continuously get, get, getting the bid? over and over and over and and winning it and um, you know yeah, is there- we're saying you know SME that it's suddenly mm. in on 20 different contracts subcontractor or exactly is yeah. that problematic right so so you mentioned a couple of examples like so thanks for this teaser I'm, I'm really eager to start discussing okay. all of them a bit more uh, so you mentioned negotiation in the contract electronic signature to trace milestones and uh, can I call them computational contracts? So that's yeah, what you mentioned yes. before. We, we so the, the really the, the next step, right? Yeah. Learning from the big data that, that we've accrued over the years with multiple contracts. So if I reflect on that, maybe we can look a bit at the at the public sector now, right? Mm. So these are different stages, I, th- I think, also of the procurement process mm. in which, you know, contract management tools can be useful uh, on the one hand to make life better, but perhaps also to just solve some of the pains that we're experiencing in the public sector at the moment. And the first one that I was thinking of also is um, uh, just the sheer amount of uh, of data, right? So public sector entities are have a lot of data, but what I see particularly in Dutch practice is many of them don't even know what their spend is for the year, mm. right? So they have all these contracts, but what happens in practice is there's such a clear division, and maybe it's our fault as lawyers, right? Mm. So maybe it's because we focus so much on the procurement process, and there's so much time and efforts devoted to it, that we forget that the actual good stuff, perhaps, and I'm saying this as a humble lawyer, perhaps, but starts afterwards, right? And this was also something that struck me when I was a PhD student visiting um, George Washington University, when I saw all of a sudden two big books in the cupboard, Whereas in the Netherlands, most of the time, we only have one big book. Mm. We have the book about, well, Dutch public procurement law from an EU law perspective. There's some international stuff. But in the US, all of a sudden, I saw formation of public contracts and the administration of public yeah, contracts. Yeah, the management of management. it. The management of it. And that was also an eye-opener for me so like to think, okay, you know, there's a whole other world, right? So That happens afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we, we as procurement lawyers are often also cut off afterwards, right? Yeah, because what we we also very often see is uh, we are nudged to think about public procurement as this all cohesive one long process that starts with formation of a of a specification and notice of what you want to buy and finishes with termination of contract, right? But the but the 
issue of that is that every stage along the way is done very often by different teams. And if you also consider that people very often, this is also something that we that we experience, right? That people very often leave the jobs and move to something else. And you don't have really a track of, of, of sort of red thread before between those stages. So then this very stereotypical view is that someone is sort of reviewing somewhere three years in public contract what they wanted to at the very beginning and they don't know. So the certain know-how or knowledge is 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 lost somewhere along those stages and how we can solve it and, and also how we can really uh, make it uh, meaningful because we keep on talking about savings. We keep, keep on talking about efficiency. We keep on talking about sustainable consideration. But if if the problem is, as you, as you mentioned, they don't even know, contracting authorities don't even know exactly how much they spend. They don't really track what happens in the contract management stage. Did you actually save the money or you didn't? So, on what basis we make those claims or oh, X amount of money have been saved. And also the whole different thing, did anyone actually look how that data is collected and processed? Because we all know, and I, I guess Alex knows the, the most in that area, that the data can be also manipulated, right? Mm-hmm. So how, you know, all these stages, because I think particularly when it comes to, right, like um, financial efficiency, competition, all that, we we very strongly feel about those things. But I think that if you really put it under magnified mirror or sorry, um, glass <laughs> metaphors, then then you actually see that very rarely you s- you have a very concrete data and outcome of it, right? Yeah, I, I fully agree. And also just to add to what you mentioned about the the separation of teams, right? I think it's it's such an such an interesting thing how it also like goes into how we structure roles or the institutional design of procurement in governments, it generally, what my perception is, it is a different person, right? So even they might leave, like you mentioned, but it's also a different department and a different person that is in charge of both these aspects. Whereas it would make a hell of a lot of sense, perhaps, that say, just moving on to a bit of a sustainability angle, right? Or a social or social angle, right? So in the, in the Netherlands, it's it's almost stock standard, a problem in that if things get standard, but like in a way, it's good that five percent of the contract value is spent on hiring long-term unemployed uh, mm-hmm. people. That is often put in the contract in a contractual condition, and then the uh, uh, the hopes is is that that will spur employment for these people, another opportunity, perhaps even a second chance in the workforce. Right. So it's a very noble goal, and I think that's a, a procurement can definitely play a role in that. But what happens is it's formed in the contract. And then it get, goes into a drawer of a contract manager mm. where market parties may or may not actually do it. So right? is it monitored anyhow? Well, I think the general perception is, is that it's not monitored, mm-hmm. right? There's stories of, um, and I don't want to portray like big construction companies as, as evil here, right? Often they do it, right? But there is a a leeway given that they won't do it because it isn't enforced. And I think mostly there is where we, you know, we get into a world where construction companies don't have to do it or other tenderers, right? Not just in the construction world. Or secondly, uh, they can do it, but they do it with the same amount of long-term unemployed people for different contracting authorities. So they go to one municipality and say, we've hired five. The other, they say we've hired five, but it's the same. So it kind so of like instead of twenty-five, it continues to exactly. be those five. So there's leeway for 
you know, not achieving ultimately what you wanted to do in the contract. And I think that's where it's a shame that uh, in a way, even though that there's, of course, uh, contract management sciences, right? Yeah. And public purchasing sciences. But us lawyers, particularly from the public sector, tend to focus mostly, I think, also from research, right? I think that even more than in practice, right? Because in practice, you have people that do the whole whole, whole lot, of course. Is that, that there seems to be a gap there that we're not filling. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you are mentioning, it's I think it's reflective not just about the public procurement process, but any larger institution that has number of different divisions and parties to the contract and, and different processes that, that apply. And and technology here is a tool, right? It it opens the door for all of these parties to, be, to to sit at the table at different time places or different times in the in the life of the contract, and um, I think that you know before maybe being super excited, of course, about the technology, and I am often, but but maybe also there is a thought or or question to answer is so what is the process even by designing the contract at the very beginning. When we design the contract at the very beginning, are we already thinking about management and enforcement of this contract? Or, you know, those people who designed the contract only ever designed it. Because if they only ever designed it and never actually managed it, then actually probably the contract is not going to meet the needs that is envisioned. I think you touch on a really relevant point here. And also just to get back on the the overview that you gave of those four categories Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's more that we can discuss, but look, we only have limited time. But when we talk about the negotiation part, right, I think that's really relevant for the public sector in the beginning, right? So we're not talking about negotiation after the the award of the contract, right? That's like the the devil, right? When from a public sector. Yeah, we cannot do that. Exactly. So we need to have a transparent process. Mm. But often the contract is attached to the procurement documents, right? Mm -hmm. So... In a way, the way I would see it, or from your description, is some of the institutional problems that we're having with the dividing lines that exist organizationally within the public sector or in a contracting authority could be overcome by having a tool that would help them construct the contract, right? From a budget perspective, from a sustainability perspective, from a public purchasing perspective, so they can work together in drafting the contract. Yes. See, that's a problem. Okay. And I think that there, yeah. and there are tools like that, right? And I think that this is really a good point in which this comes handy because you at least accumulate the knowledge that goes from mm-hmm. the very beginning, right? But we don't have that much time. So let's move on to the to the next one. Yeah. So electronic signatures. It's something that I think is very useful and practical, but it's also a topic, signatures, that has pissed me off a little bit, if I'm okay. completely why, honest. Why, why is that? Um, because I find there's... Okay, let's take a different angle. If I want to make my students enthusiastic about public procurement law, I shouldn't talk about the formalities <laughs> of signatures. And if I look at the, the Dutch practice, and I know examples from other member states as well, it's procurement law is clearly procedural law, which is also used as an instrument, but it's still very much procedural. And in a way, it's very formalistic. Yes. And I understand that serves a purpose, but I th- would like to think that we should leave room for fixing those mistakes. So if the, not the person authorized by the Articles of Association didn't sign the bid 
right? Mm -hmm. Who didn't sign that signature. Perhaps there should be room for that person to fix that in the procedure. And so sure. far, public procurement law is quite rigid yeah. when it comes to this. Nope. We can't do that, right? Because it's unequal and the, you should have had your business in order. And I think in a way, some of that discussion was sparked again during COVID, right? When mm -hmm. electronic signatures became a thing, like who? And we continue to have this discussion. And this is where I think like, okay, Technology solves a part of it because it's far more practical, right? A director doesn't need to be in the country to sign. Yes. But it doesn't solve this whole formalistic approach of how we approach public procurement law. Well, actually, it does. Okay. Happy, so, so happy to hear. Enlighten Imagine, imagine, right? Because I assume, and of course, this depends from country to country. So, But in Denmark, for instance, our register of corporations is a public registry which means that all of the data that are there are publicly available. So it's a public API. Um, and ultimately what happens is that in theory, you can, you can bring that into a contract and you indicate who is to sign the contract, right? And now the technology should be smart enough, and this is not anything substantially challenging to actually do tech-wise, is to say, okay, and compare these two before ever even one person is going to sign it, but compare it, you plug it into the public registry and it shows you that it's a mismatch. So it shows you a, you know, uh, let's say exclamation mark and a person who is preparing this contract will then need to follow up on it. And, and that's why I'm saying is, you know, before submitting the bid, before submitting the bid, right? And say, oh, okay, sorry, but according to this, you know, this person should be, or even, you know, bring in, because again, we are living in a digital age where also the email addresses are often registered. So actually the that contract will go directly to the person who is actually entitled, according to the public registry of corporations signed a contract. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better, but not entirely, because in a way that, you know, makes it easier to do the right thing. Yes. But say you would still do the wrong thing, I think there should be some leeway that contracting authorities or courts should give to these minor things that I don't, that I don't think influence the competitive process to an extent where, yeah. where inequality is achieved. I, yeah. Um, uh, but so, I, so negotiation in the contract, electronic signatures, I really want to talk about the computational contract, mm -hmm. but one of the most obvious ones, and we talked about it a bit already, is the benefits of really, with a contract management tool, keeping track of all the milestones. Yes. And um, in a way, I think that's where the sustainability and social angle comes in, is really enforcing what was promised. Um, so so I think that's, that's a given. But if we look towards the future, right, we talked a lot about the big amounts of data that we'll get yes. or have already. How can we, what's, what lies ahead, right? So, so let's say dream we have, bit. So say we have all of this, right? Mm -hmm. We negotiate the contract internally. We use electronic signature. We track all the milestones and we're really good at that. And then you come in and you say, it's not enough. You can actually use computational analysis to get more out of it. What does that dream world, as Marta described it, what does that look like? What it could do for us. It can, uh, you know, I think that it depends, right? And I'm sorry for, for starting the, the answer with it depends. A very lawyery start, yes. yes. Um, but it can give you the big picture, the, the, the broader understanding, what actually has been achieved, what hasn't been achieved, for instance, what has been achieved through not just one contract, 
but imagine the computations actually measuring some 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 data some indicators showing you for instance that some of the provisions that you actually used a lot of your negotiating power were never even enforced or relied upon right so so are redundant so the time and money that you put into it actually yes. is not giving you the outcome exactly yeah. and this is and this is not you know just a sound of future because there are companies and and there are a couple of also there is one at least company that does this already here in Denmark I will not mention the name but if you look for computational contracts you will find them out and i saw what they did and they did it in public procurement yes. setting it's pretty cool actually exactly so 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 it's already out there and the question is uh, whether the public authorities are willing and ready to to actually move along and and utilize these possibilities so they're bringing back to the point Willem, that you made so if you have this type of computational management tool which sort of has a little bit to my limited understanding alex correct me correct me if i'm saying something that doesn't make sense but it's a little bit how the through AI, it almost learn itself, right? So it tells you, well, if you promised those five long-term unemployed, that bumped up the offer by X amount of money. This is the extra that you paid on it, right? So to speak. And then you didn't follow up on it. So there is a certain amount of money that you kind of paid premium for, but mm-hmm. you never followed up. So maybe next time or actually consider following up or don't include it. Yes, or or it gives you an advice that something, you know, um, because often things do not happen because people don't have enough time or or forget about things, right? Because if you have, even if you have the digital uh, contracts in your folder, how many of us, and plus take into account that people change in their positions and so on, actually stay with the contract through the entire life cycle of that contract. So having a tool that reminds you on some actionable rights that you have as a public authority. Delays, fines. Delays, uh, fines, or or anything, uh, requesting reports or requesting additional data on, for instance, those five unemployed or long-time unemployed people, or even comparing their names in order to figuring out whether the, those are the, the, the five people that they mention of, for their hundred contracts, or actually they they created a value for the money. So creating value, I think that's a, that's a perfect way of also coming to a close on the, the main mm. one aspect that you briefly mentioned, but that, that I'd still just like to highlight is also the potential. I think if we have our data in order through ma- contract management tools, it has great potential for transparency, for, yes. uh, for the fight against corruption. I think that is something that's very vital for the public sector. So in a way, having that in order allows contracting authorities to just to be very transparent, right? There's no excuse then. And for sure, I guess in our optimistic approach, there is a whole next episode that at some point we could have also about the sort of, I will call it very <laughs> cheekily kind of dark side of all of it, like the issues of privacy, the issues, the the, the very sort of downsides, right, of really having this big brother on, on, on everything that for sure along the way you need to somehow also introduce checks and balances to, to do that, right? But um, it is a massive topic. We hope that Alex will come back at some point to discuss some other uh 
points of You don't the... have to answer now if you will return. Right? <laughs> we'll leave that in the middle. No, of I'll it, be happy. I'll, I'll happily return. Okay. Don't worry. But we will wrap up the main course of our podcast and we'll move on to the dessert. And dessert today, we were trying to think what could be an interesting um, lighter element to to wrap up today and we spend a fair bit of time discussing issues relevant for PhDs and young uh, starting um, researchers and academics but we also realized that all three of us in a fairly recentish time transition from what you would call a fairly junior positions to to uh, the mid-level position of associate professor and we thought that this can be an interesting entry point of reflecting where are we? Is something changed? Do we have a different role? Yeah, so maybe for, for the for the dessert, we can all highlight one thing that we perceived or that we noticed or what's different or is, is that is that work? I'm just looking left and right, but no one can see that. Because <laughs> um, uh, I for sure, um, when I, so I was made associate professor in June of last year, so it's a, it's been a year now. And in a way, what, what struck me is, is that I felt like I was the same person, but others perceived me a bit differently, which I thought was um, interesting. All of a sudden, sitting at the same table with uh, a group of PhDs, maybe I was exaggerating it, and maybe it was also me reflecting on it, but I did notice there was a, a bit of a change there. And I thought that was a something that, um, because it is a more... I would say, because obviously on paper it's more senior, but it also changes some of the dynamics of how you're perceived and what your role is in a, in a, in a faculty. Um, so that was, uh, I don't know what to do with that, first mm. of all. I don't know how to, if that's a bad thing. I think it's normal. It, it also happened to me when I was, um, uh, when I started transitioning to a more senior lecturer. Students didn't see me as one of them anymore. So I started teaching when I was like what, 24 or something. And then you're not too far off from their world. But now I think with associate, you're very far off from someone that just started teaching. And that changes something in the social dynamics. So that was what I wanted to share. Alex, what about you? You see, I'm, I'm now reflecting whether I've observed something like that. But maybe, you know, I'm just not as... Oblivious. <laughs> well, I'm more oblivious, right? Um, maybe not that attentive to, to well, detail. Or maybe I'm just not a nice guy. I think that's maybe it. No, I hope not. Uh, I don't think so. Um, no, but what I feel that the associate professor position open for me personally is the ability to support others much more than 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 before before as a yeah as a postdoc or as a system professor you can you can you can try to but you don't have that much of a i wouldn't say the foot in the room or or, or a statement or even like your ability to apply for funding and to create some something of a value is is a little bit restricted, right? And when and maybe rightfully so from the perspective of the institution that you are only at the faculty uh, for a limited period of time and suddenly you are tenured. So so obviously you are here for a long term. So the, the institution and other uh, foundations, which is the reality here in Denmark, uh, are more willing to support your vision. But um, that's what I feel. It's... Um, it's, this kind of gives you or gives me the, the opportunity to to support the people around me and, and support the junior um, researchers, but also students in a, in a different way that it was possible before. 
So that really echoes with me. So it's more of a, it's more leadership. It's more providing a platform for for others. What about you, Marta? I kind of think that you a bit particular position because it's this this mid-level, right? And that means on the one hand side, you probably have been in academia for long enough to see variety of things, see what you like, what you don't like, what you would want to change if you have an opportunity. Um, but also you kind of still on the way, right? You, you, you didn't arrive yet. There is still that one glorious position in front of you. Um, which means that you also need to still like work within the system that you are. I think for me, the biggest change was until this position, it was very much, okay, what I need to do for me to progress, what I, it, it was much more individualistic, I think. Okay, I need to do this and that right now. And I don't know um, whether it's specifically, you know, turning to the position of associate professorship, or is it the matter of also sapiens coming in and suddenly having the platform of those 15 young scholars that I particularly feel, you know, sort of not responsible, but just just I really deeply care for all of them to do well. But I think for me is this this change that is not anymore about me. It's about the fact that I feel quite protective of the younger scholars that I work um, with. I feel like I have right now the privilege that I need to sort of stand for certain values that I believe, even if it takes, you know, a certain amount of heat or, or directs a certain amount of heat on me, because I cannot expect that from the younger us, because I would hate if anyone would expect that from me when I was in that position. The privilege of a little bit more, you know, uh, well, permanent position or stable position rather. But at the same time, the conflict or not conflict, but the stress around the fact that you don't want to rock the boat too much because you still kind of want to progress in your career. And I think the sort of balancing how you figure, how you do a sort of a little revolution, but within the system, with the people on the board rather than uh, against them, that's that's quite interesting. And that's, that's for me the biggest, I think, change. So you're, we're, we... If I can say we, we're at the table, but... Are we really? Are we really? <laughs> um, and, and, and it goes without saying that we're, well, very appreciative about how far we've gotten and all the people that have helped us in, in getting here, and for sure. <laughs> and I think also that the question is also, you've arrived, now what, right? Mm. So it's this, this transition also in terms of content, like, okay, it's not just about my particular research anymore, it's about vision of where we take the university and... What do we do with student education and that type of stuff? And I think that's, well, as far as I know, you two, it's also a very much of a fun position to be in, but it comes also with with struggles. And that's, I think, what we wanted to do. So so thank you so much for, for being open about uh, about this, is just to get the discussion going, because I think every transition in academia comes with its own struggles, whether you're a PhD, whether you're an assistant professor, postdoc, or any type of position that, that you're in, it comes with challenges and, and having to overcome hurdles in yourself, but also for in, in institutions. Yeah, I think like we, we, until now we were building ourselves and now it's really about building the teams that you work with and people around you and creating platforms for others and how you do it in the, in a be- how you're making the best, giving the best service to people around you, right? So I think that that's, that's a really cool way to wrap it up. Um, now, how are we going for time, Alex? Well, 
<laughs> All right, that's that's that, that's said. a quick one. Okay, well, Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us and being our very first guest on the Stack Public Procurement Podcast. Willem, you're sticking around for a couple more days, so we'll do some more of this. For um, sure. Thank you so much to our listeners, and uh, we hope you're going to tune in for our next one. This was the Stack Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestecpodcast.com. Thank you.